questions today um, one here when we meditate and pain arises we should try to objectively observe it but there comes a point when the untrained mind becomes too agitated to do this if we take the same principle into daily life there are things that arise that causes stress and pain. Again, we can try to objectively observe, but at some, some point, it is better to try to change these situations. Can you please talk about knowing this point in which it becomes wiser to change rather than grit our teeth and put up with things? Good question. I think everybody probably thinks about this. Well, just looking on the level of meditation, sitting here or walking today, if you have pain arise, as I was t explaining earlier, um, there's sort of two ways to deal with it. One is actually just ignore it <coughs> and go to the breath until you get to the point where the mind is so happy and content to be with the breath. The breath is more interesting than anything else and then the pain you might just not notice it anymore or it doesn't bother you. You might be able to just quietly tolerate the pain or it might just disappear. That's one way. But as the question says, sometimes mind isn't ready to do that, can't ignore the pain. And the pain keeps drawing our attention. So then you can also use wisdom, use your intelligence to investigate the pain. Meaning you actually put your attention on the pain and probably you can't do anything else. You keep noticing this pain. But try to start investigating it, meaning asking yourself questions and where is this pain? What is the nature of this pain? Is this pain constant? Or is it changing? Like sometimes you have a pain and it comes and goes or it gets bigger and gets smaller. You can ask where is the pain? Is the pain in the bone or in the skin or in the flesh or the blood? And those things don't really know anything. 
then who knows the pain? The pain is known by the mind. So we have the mind and then the pain and then the body. As you investigate like this, you're becoming more familiar with your pain. And obviously you might not be able to do this for too long before you start becoming restless and agitated. It's too much. But if you at least have a go, you find pain can be a lot more bearable than we think. And by investigating it, actually making it the center of your attention, looking at it and learning from it, you're separating out between the pain as an experience, just the feeling, that feeling of pain. And then the mind that knows it. And then what you think about it, your reaction to it, which will generally be one of not liking it. And you'll see that these are different aspects of your experience. When you're not very mindful and you don't investigate, probably just pain immediately brings up a reaction of dislike and you just want to move or get rid of the pain, which is quite understandable. But you don't learn much when you do that. But when you mindfully start investigating pain, you're starting to see that your reaction and your view towards that pain can change as you grow in mindfulness and wisdom. Some people even can find that their pain, the sense of ownership of the pain, and my pain, changes as they start looking at the pain. And little by little, you know, maybe at first you can only do this for a few minutes and then it's too much the pain and you just have to get up or move or change posture. But if you meditate regularly, then you'll get used to looking at pain and learning about it. And you might be able to get to the point where you can just see pain as pain in itself. It's just one phenomenon, one experience. And the mind that knows the pain is separate from it. You know, there's the knowing and there's the pain. And you start seeing the relationship, but seeing actually um, this pain is not really the same thing as that which knows it. And this is a subtle point, but meditation starts to reveal this to us, show us this. And the result is you become more peaceful with your pain, more tolerant of it, because you're getting to know it as it is and seeing it as it is without just reacting to it and without letting your prejudices or the judging mind take over. When you have no, not much mindfulness or not, not much wisdom around pain, the fact that you don't like pain means that you immediately react against it. So you say, I don't want this. And you'll quickly move away or it will even put you in a mood. You say, I've got this terrible pain and so I feel depressed or unhappy. But as you start to investigate with mindfulness, maybe that tendency to prejudge your pain, react against it and... Um, suffer because of it and reduces, it diminishes. You actually become more at ease with pain. And if it's pain that you can't get rid of, because there's, you know, there's pain that is just simple pain, like you've been sitting a long time, so your leg aches. It's one kind of pain. But then there's other pain to do with illness and injury, which we can't get rid of. You know, whether you meditate or not, whether you're sitting or walking, whatever it might be there. How do you deal with that? 
And this is where you can really learn and use mindfulness and wisdom to get more understanding of your pain and the mind that reacts to the pain. You can start training it to be a little bit more tolerant and patient with the pain and actually separate your mind that knows the pain from the pain. And this separation comes as we investigate it and you, you get a sense of this pain, it's, it's real, but it's not so much your pain, it's just pain. Pain is pain, just as pleasurable feelings, just the same, we can start to see them as pleasure. But you're re removing this sense of ownership or grasping at it, which causes us other kinds of suffering. So most people who meditate regularly find that they can be with pain for longer periods and maybe more pain than they used to be because they're taking out the, the sense of ownership, the grasping and reacting to it. So they become more tolerant, more at ease. But having said that, we've all got our limits. So what you don't want to do is just try and push yourself to deal with pain, be, be with pain to the point where you get very angry or upset because if you push yourself to the, too far then you'll probably never want to meditate again because you'll think oh it's too much it makes me too miserable so it's a balanced practice but the quality that will help you most is mindfulness and then wisdom investigating the pain and that will help you to gradually understand it better and free yourself from the attachment to the pain You know, many people have found this, they found that over years of practicing meditation maybe they used to have fear of different kinds of pain and that fear starts to get a bit less, like fear of uh, the dentist, you know, the pain of dental treatment or different medical procedures, like that, just having um, an injection or something. Once you're more mindful, you find you can tolerate pain better and you get to know it and maybe you realize, oh, it's not as bad as I thought it was. And this is what you learn from meditation. Then you can apply this wisdom in other areas of your life. So like this question I was saying, you know, in, with things that you really can't bear with, uh, when is the point that you have to change things? Well, that's another question is that there's some difficulties in life, some painful situations you can't change. So what do you do then? You can't always assume you'll be able to change the situation to remove the pain, can you? Say physical pain is one like, if you're meditating, well, yes, you can stop sitting on the ground, you get up, move away, and maybe your pain goes. But say you fall ill, and there's pain there all the time, and you can't get rid of it. How do you deal with that? You also have to learn how to wisely reflect on pain, don't you? Or a situation, you know, sometimes it's some problem in our lives that we would like to change, but we can't. And what do we do then? You know, maybe it's the pain of uh, maybe some kind of burden that you have, some responsibility. You might, your job gives you lots of responsibilities. Or you have to work long hours or 
use a lot of mental or physical energy in your job. And you can't avoid that, otherwise you lose your job. What do you do then? Well, you have to learn to train yourself to work at what you have to do. If you've taken on this responsibility, you have to agree with yourself, well, I'm going to do this job. And then you have to do it in a balanced way where you, you know how to pace yourself. <coughs> just like a, someone doing a long-distance run, a marathon or something, they don't just burst off run as fast as they can for the first hour because you know, they'll just burn themselves out and can't finish the marathon. If you've got a lot of work responsibility where you maybe have to find a way to balance your efforts, know how to pace yourself, take rest as you're working, sort of go easy for a while and then pick up again, um, know how to be patient with some of the difficulties of that job. If it's something you can change, well, then you have to look at the results of what you're doing and say, well, if I'm taking on too much, then maybe I should uh, reduce my workload a bit because it's the pain, the stress of this workload is so much, I'm getting very, very miserable. Just like the one meditating, if they push themselves so hard that they're just painful all the time, they get miserable and you know, they can get burnt out or actually start to hate meditation. Well, similarly with your job, if you have a job that you start to hate, it's not much fun, is it? <laughs> you might have to learn how to skillfully give away some of your responsibility or not take on so much responsibility. Find a balance, find a point of balance. That's if you can. And some things in life you can't avoid though, can you? Like say if you have children some people come and they say oh I've got children it's such a burden I've got to earn money to educate them and feed them and buy them all these things and I've got to run around <laughs> taking them places oh a lot of pain and then they say things that I don't agree with <laughs> and they say things that aren't very nice to hear and they don't appreciate me and they're not grateful <laughs> Well, it's too late, isn't it? Once, once they're, that's usually when they're teenagers. It's too late then. You, the burden you already took it on when you had the baby, <laughs> fifteen years ago. <laughs> it's too late to get out of that. You can't change that situation. Uh, you, I guess you could go and dump your kids somewhere, but that wouldn't be the right thing to do. So you have to take on that burden and the pain of bringing up children. You, you have to accept that. You can't change that, but. You have to learn how to develop a wise attitude to it. And if you develop mindfulness and wisdom around a problem, if it's bringing you suffering, you're willing to look at it more deeply, you're willing to learn from it. What you're doing is you're starting to, to get through some of your delusions and these prejudices and reactions, you know, like if it's say it's your kid, they keep saying and doing things that you disagree with and it causes you pain, well instead of just always getting angry and complaining about them and arguing whatever, which will probably do neither of you good, you maybe have to sometimes sit down and look more deeply at why is my kid doing this? <laughs> why do they act in this way? Why don't they listen to me? And as you do this, you're investigating and becoming more aware of the problem. Well, you, you generally become a little bit more compassionate and more tolerant. And just like the meditator who 
starting to investigate pain, they start to be able to understand their own pain better, that then they can actually live with it, be at ease with it, and be with it longer. Well, say you had a, a kid who was causing you a lot of problems. You, once you start investigating them, in a sense, you become more aware of, well, what are their problems? Why are they acting in this way? Why do they speak in this way? Why do they act? And then also maybe looking back, or maybe is there something I'm not doing right? You maybe look back and you think, hmm, yeah, maybe I could change the way I speak to them or do things a little different. You know, the more you investigate, contemplate the problem, get to know it, the more a sense of understanding grows and the easier it is to deal with that problem and maybe it just disappears altogether. Maybe you just start to listen to them more, try and find common ground, talk to them more, try and get to, get to know them better, what's, what's causing them to act in the ways they do if, if in, in such a situation. And over time, maybe the problem starts to get less, less of a problem. Life is like this. If we're willing to learn from the situations that cause us pain and suffering, that's where we actually get wisdom. We grow from that. If we're always trying to avoid pain and suffering, then we tend to remain stupid <laughs> because we're not actually learning why we suffer. We're not getting to the cause of it. Right, this, is a, this is a point monks understand very well because in a monastery there's plenty of things that bring up some difficulty or pain and you're not always able to get out of it. Right, just the lifestyle of a monk, you only eat one main meal a day. So every day you experience a hungry stomach, at least usually just in the morning when you're hungry and you haven't eaten for, since the day before. You have the pain of hunger. But over time, you start getting used to that and investigating it. And you say, oh, it's bearable. I'm not going to die just because you haven't eaten for a few hours. And by getting to know it with mindfulness, then it becomes much more tolerable and bearable. You understand it. And it's less of a problem or becomes no problem at all. Or sometimes as a monk, you're tired. Like here we might have a morning meditation. You have to be in the hall by 5 a.m. So you have to get up at 4 a.m. Maybe if you live on the hill, we live in Kutis, up on the hill. You have to get up early. Maybe it's cold and wet. You have to come down. Yeah, at first you might think, oh, this is painful. This is difficult. But if you've been doing it for a while and practicing mindfulness, you learn, oh, it's, it's doable, it's bearable. The only real problem is my mind. Maybe it's my mind that's just reacting out of ignorance. I don't understand what's going on and I'm just reacting because I, I, I like my comforts. I don't like pain or discomfort. After a while, though, facing up to some pain, you learn from it and then the, maybe some of that pain or difficulty just disappears altogether or at least you, it becomes more bearable. You know, the very thought, I can't bear this, yeah, it's just a thought, isn't it? <laughs> if you've got some, some kind of difficult situation you can't get out of, why make it worse by complaining in your mind about it? Saying, oh, I hate this, because that doesn't actually change the situation, does it? <laughs> and it's just a thought that you're adding on to the situation. Like, oh, I can't stand this person anymore, I can't stand this situation anymore. It's just a thought 
They say if you're a monk, you get into a situation like this, usually you can't get out anyway, so you just have to learn to be with those thoughts and you practice mindfulness until you say, oh, it's just a thought. If I can let go of this thought, well, at least I'll be better off. I might still have to get up early in the morning or eat my one meal a day, but at least I can let go of this mind state of negativity. So that's what you, you learn as a monk. You learn how to let go of your own aversion to, to difficult situations. Or maybe it's, you know, you're craving some comfort that you used to have before you're a monk. Like when you're a lay person, you, know, you can sleep when you want, eat when you want, go out when you want, you've got money, you can buy things, go here, go there. You can say what you want. If you want to swear, you can swear. <laughs> if you're a monk, you can't. Maybe you're a monk and you get really angry inside, but you can't swear because we've got rules. You can't swear, can't fight. Can't do anything as a monk. We're very limited. So it's bound sometimes to bring up a sense of frustration with a situation. But that's helping you. You have rules and, and guidelines in your practice as a monk. You learn how to let go of your negative reaction. And then usually the thing that is causing it, you realize it wasn't much at all. Often something very simple that you can easily get by with. You know, anyone can get by with you know, cold weather or wet weather or missing out on some little comfort that you, you would like to have but you haven't got. If you apply mindfulness and wisdom to that, you can get by very easily. But when we lose our mindfulness, then you know, even the smallest little thing becomes a big thing in our mind. It becomes a big problem. Right. I was talking about this the other day. My family members rang up from Europe and they live in the UK and you know all the, all the aeroplanes stopped working for a whole week, no flights. My brother and his family are on holiday in Spain, can't get back home, <laughs> unexpected. Difficult situation, you can't change it either, you can't make the planes fly because they're grounded and that's it, finished. So you either make the best of your situation or you, you, you suffer. <laughs> Unfortunately, my brother doesn't meditate much, so he was suffering quite a lot. <laughs> Complaining about the air company and this and that and whatever, volcanoes. <laughs> but my mum, she was at home, my mum does meditate. She's going on holiday to Switzerland. Her best friend lives in Switzerland. She's going on a flight to Switzerland but has to wait because the flight's delayed. But my mum meditates, so she said, oh, I think this is teaching us something, isn't it? I said, yes, mum, this is teaching us impermanence, the unpredictability of life. So meditation helps, doesn't it? If you meditate, you get used to facing to difficult situations, painful situations, not getting what you want. You get used to that and you get used to letting go of your negative reaction. And then the situation becomes quite easy to deal with often. And my brother, oh, a few more days in the sun, <laughs> what's to complain about? Uh, my mum just, oh, I'll just postpone it for a week, I can still go on, my mum's retired, she's 80 years old, so it doesn't really matter whether she goes this week or next week, it's much the same. Yeah, these little things in life which you could make into a big cause of suffering, if you get the right attitude and watch your mind, you can let go within a situation that you can't change. 
Obviously, if you can change a difficult situation or painful situation, well, sometimes that's the right thing to do as well. It's not that you should just grit your teeth all the time. But usually we do it too easily and too quickly. And we, if you're always used to changing what you don't like, then you'll suffer all the more, won't you? Because you always think of changing what you don't like. Everything that comes up you don't like, just want to change, becomes a habit and you suffer easily. Because if you develop some patience and then learn to mindfully look at what's happening more closely and look at your reactions and see how you can actually let go of them, well, you're doing yourself a lot of good. And you can apply this all the time in life. This is just what meditation teaches us, teaches us to deal with difficulties and pain. There was one time there was a, a monk who was the abbot of a monastery, a branch monastery, and he was finding it very difficult to... Um, to run this monastery because he had to teach the lay people, teach the monks, build the buildings, maintain the place, a lot of work for, for this one senior monk. And he found he had no time to meditate. So he went to Ajahn Chah and he said, I, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> uh, you know, he reached the point that he couldn't bear the problem anymore. Too painful, too difficult, he wanted change. Ajahn Chah just said, yes you can. <laughs> sent it back again <laughs> and it was just a thought oh I can't do this anymore oh yes you can he went back and I found, he found he could do it and he stayed the abbot and he's still the abbot <laughs> our mind tricks us all the time and says you know this, this big problem I can't cope anymore maybe it's just the mind telling you that maybe you can cope next question when we observe the eight precepts do we need to continue it for 24 hours? Then can we take a bath and wear new clothes within this, within this 24 hour period? Oh yeah, you can take a bath when you're keeping the eight precepts and you can change your clothes, that's allowed. <laughs> Usually we do undertake the eight precepts for a period of, we say a night and a day or a day and a night, so that might be 24 hours. But you just have to use your wisdom and see what's appropriate for your life situation. So if you can, can't keep it for fully 24 hours, when you reach the point where you can't keep it anymore for some reason, these eight precepts, well then you agree maybe to go, just mindfully to yourself agree to go on to the five precepts, which I hope you're all keeping anyway. <laughs> And it's, um, you know, it's just something you maybe set time aside for. Like the way it's been practiced since the time of the Buddha and st still these days is people do, maybe they pick a day when they are free, they don't have other business to keep the eight precepts. You know, once you see the value of the precepts in helping your meditation, you know, it simplifies your life. So for that day, you don't eat in the evening, you eat you know, a, a good meal in the morning and then in the evening maybe just have a fruit juice or a cup of tea or something. Uh, don't have entertainment, so you don't listen to music, watch TV, mu movies and things for the day. 
you just pick a day when you can do that comfortably at ease it's not going to bother anyone else and then you, you, you use that day and the precepts as a way to increase your efforts in the practice and or come into places like this or to other Buddhist centers or monasteries um, is a very good way to keep refreshing your practice you pick a day once a week, once a month once in a while you, you pick a day or even a few days if you've got the chance and you keep coming back to the eight precepts you become more skilled with them and you find they become quite helpful to simplify your life and in, in help to make a more peaceful environment for your, your practice next question when I sit for meditation the mind goes to the past and the future how can I control this? well this is very very common I think we all experience this especially in the beginning the mind just just wants to think about what's happened before and what might happen and it, it's a habit we've had for years and years since we've been born we keep doing it so it's not going to stop just like that the first thing one can do is understand well this is just my karma my habit that I've built up for a long time now so it's not going to go away just like that so one doesn't make maybe unskillful expectations thinking well today I'm just going to stop everything I'm not going to think about the past the future in my meditation I'm just going to be fixed on the breath in the present moment and that is your goal but at the same time you, you realize it might not work that way or for the whole of your meditation period anyway there, there might well be some thoughts about the past or the future so try and get a, a skillful attitude where you, you know what the problem is you are seeing oh I do have this habit but you're not expecting it to just disappear overnight you've got to see oh, this is, a, this is a, a, a practice I have to keep working at keep learning this skill of bringing the mind to the present moment and you can see, you know, if you keep practicing meditation, maybe you do meditation at home once a day as a thing, once in the morning or once in the evening. And then also you keep bringing up mindfulness in your daily life. Keep bringing this quality of bringing your mind to the present moment as you're doing some work or as you're reading or as you're driving, as you're doing different activities in your day. You keep bringing the mind back to the present moment you start to change this habit whereas instead of always seeking distraction in the future plans or going to the past the mind becomes more used to coming back to the present moment and just resting there like the Buddha said when you have mindfulness of the present moment it's a rest for your mind it's very restful peaceful because the mind becomes more still when it's thinking about the past the future it's very active so it's not getting a rest, it gets tired. Mentally we get drained, thinking all about the future, what's going to happen, I'm going to do this, go there, what happened in the past. All of that drains us, so it fi we find we, we mentally become a bit tired and even become stressed with our worries and concerns. But when you train and practice bringing your mind back to the present moment, although it's a bit difficult, but when you do it more, then the mind starts to incline that way. The Buddha said it will actually incline naturally more to the present moment, more to the state of peace where the mind is at rest, just knowing from moment to moment what's happening without the kind of restless thinking about past and future.
Obviously, sometimes you can think of the past or the future with mindfulness. It's not like they're evil or anything wrong with them. You can mindfully plan what you're going to do tomorrow or what you have to do in some job of work you've got to do in the future. Or you can mindfully reflect on the past and learn something about the past, recall some event or something from the past. You know, there are times when it's okay to do that, it's appropriate to do that. But I think what the question means is that kind of habit where it just the mind is always just going over, over the place to the future, the past, and you can't control it. So that's where you keep learning to come back to the present moment in your meditation and then just in daily activities. And over time it becomes more natural. You might find just automatically your mind goes to the breath sometimes because you've been practicing this for a while. Automatically the mind just wants to rest in the activity that you're doing right now. It might be you know, you're walking down the road and you're just quietly walking and you know you're walking and you're not looking for anything else other than just walking down the road at that time. That's when your mind is actually inclining to the present moment. That's the result of your meditation. It will come up sometimes. Then there will be other times when the mind is very uncontrollable, restless, all over the place. At those times you have to be patient. And you just set your target. I'm just going to keep watching this. I can't stop it. I can't stop my mind thinking all these thoughts about the future or what happened yesterday or the last year. But I'm going to watch these thoughts. I'm going to keep half an eye on them as the mind keeps thinking them. So you're gradually bringing up the level of your mindfulness as you're caught into this uncontrollable, restless mind state. And you'll notice you know, every mind state, however restless it is, you might think for you know, half an hour the mind is just going full on planning, scheming, worrying, whatever it may be. But if you are willing to be patient with it and just keep watching it, after a period of time, however long it may be, it will change. You know, the most powerfully restless mind state, eventually it burns itself out. You know, it will change, it will calm down and move on to something else. Through different causes and conditions, we'll let that mind state go and we'll move on to something else. If you've been practicing mindfulness, kind of following along, watching this, you'll notice, oh, that restlessness is gone now. I'm free from it. And if you're mindful at that point, you'll gain some understanding there because you'll see, oh, even the most restless, uncontrollable state of mind still is impermanent. It changes. It's not sure. It's not going to be there forever. If you've done that a few times, then it happens again. You know straight away, even though you can't stop it, you know, oh, this isn't going to last forever. Yeah, I can't stop myself thinking these thoughts, just going on and on and on, but I know it, it, was, it is going to change, it will stop. And you learn that way and you become wiser, and you, as you become wiser, this gradually undermines the habit of this uncontrollable thinking, so it becomes less of a problem. You worry less, you get caught into distracted thinking less. And gradually you come back to the present moment more and, and more quickly. It doesn't take so long. It's a matter of practice. Just keep inclining to the present moment and that will become what the mind gets used to. Ajahn, is it appropriate to listen to songs in order to bring the mind to the present moment? 
Uh, well, songs are usually pleasant, <clears throat> pleasant sense contact on the ears, aren't they? That's why we listen. But part of the pleasure is it's taking us away to some mood. It evokes a mood and emotion as we listen. We feel soothed or roused, excited, depends on the kind of song. You know, there are songs and songs, aren't they? <laughs> Depends how old you are. <laughs> Depends your character. There's classical music, there's pop music, there's soft music, everything. But generally what's happening is you're going to that sound, that contact, and it takes you away from the present moment, unfortunately. Although we might feel like that absorption into the song is making us very focused and present and mindful, it's, it's actually taking us away from the present moment. You're getting caught into the emotion that comes with the song. Now obviously if you've been feeling stressed or tired, that will f make you feel relaxed. It's something more pleasant than what you were experiencing before. And so people do like to use this as a way to relax. That's why you know, there's so many songs in the world. And even people have meditation music and they put it on and do this. Um, but if you really want to improve your mindfulness, you want to learn to do without externals like song uh, or music uh, or other things that people use, other stimulus like lights, sounds and so on. Because they're very fleeting, they're very temporary. A song just lasts for a few minutes, it takes you away and you feel a bit better, you come away from your previous mood of stress or distraction but then it ends and you, you probably will go start sooner or later going back to this feeling of stress or pain, physical or mental problem that you, you had that you were trying to get away from. You know, it's a temporary escape and it isn't really teaching you in the same way as when you meditate. When you meditate, you're actually looking at the cause of your stress, looking at the mood, the feeling becoming more aware of it as an impermanent phenomena, state of mind or a feeling, an emotion, and you're seeing it, you're learning about it, and that's much more valuable when you actually face up to your stress, your problem, how you're feeling, whatever it is. Whereas the song will tend not to bring you this uh, wisdom, it will tend to just kind of give you temporary relaxation. So in that sense, well, it's not wrong. But if you become addicted to it, or it becomes a habit, well, you probably find you're not going to learn very much mindfulness or gain much wisdom from that. You need to actually learn to bring up mindfulness in the present moment without music, without these other things. Even chanting, like people often find chanting soothing, but chanting isn't, the Buddha always said, it's not done as a song. It might have this effect that if you feel quite relaxed chanting, which is a benefit, but chanting is actually it's a meditation where you're, you're reciting a word or a phrase which has, one has meaning, which helps you to remember the teaching, so it's bringing out wisdom. And then also it's a place of developing mindfulness, and it's supposed to be monotone, so you just chant in a sort of, fairly monotone way. It's not a song where you're changing notes, changing keys, uh, getting caught into the emotion of it in that way.
Ajahn, walking meditation is most beneficial. Now what is most beneficial? I think walking short distance, walking around the area, at what pace? Distance of steps. Thank you. There's a good question. Um, generally the traditional way that we were taught in the forest monasteries by teachers like Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Mun, is to make a walking path. So in the forest, obviously, it might be between two trees. So it's just a, a flat path that you can walk up and down on between two trees. So it might be anything from 10 meters long, 15, even 20 meters long. It's just a pathway that you can walk up and down it on. And traditionally you start at the beginning of your path. You might put your hands up in Anjali like this, show respect to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, to your teachers. Then you place your hands together in front of you and you cast your eyes down to the ground in front of you so that you're not looking all around, getting distracted. And then you step out. And as you step, right foot, you recite Buddha. This word Buddha from Buddha, meaning the awakened one or the knowing. And as you step your left foot down, Buddha, and you're aware of the feeling of the feet touching the ground and then raising and touching the ground. And you also recite the mantra, Buddha, Buddha, as you do this. And traditionally one doesn't have to particularly do it very slowly. It can just be an ordinary pace. And when you get to the end of your path, you stop, you turn around, and keep your eyes cast down and just compose yourself for a few moments. Just bring yourself awareness as you're stopped and then you start walking again. So you're walking back and forth, back and forth. Not looking around, just keeping your eyes on the ground a few meters in front of you in a very relaxed way, at a relaxed pace and just being aware of your feet, first of all, the, the word, and then your mind, obviously, what's happening to your mind. Things come up, you're noticing thoughts come up, and you let them go, and you keep coming back to the present moment and to this activity of walking. So it sounds very boring, but if you do it, and you keep bringing up mindfulness, your mind starts to settle down, just like with the sitting meditation, and you feel start to feel quite calm and relaxed and to keep contemplating anicca dukkha anatta impermanence unsatisfactoriness the not self of our experience you can do that very easily as you're walking so that's the standard obviously some people particularly when they're new to walking they like to walk very slowly to improve mindfulness and it's not wrong if you want to do that uh, some people like to walk fast, though they're quite rare, but monks often they walk a lot and sometimes they learn to walk meditation quite fast, back and forth, back and forth. And that's not wrong either. You just learn what works for you. Um, there's one issue though with the walking very slowly is that it can become a habit so that you only feel you can be mindful when you're walking slowly and then what do you do when you're walking at a normal pace in the rest of your life, daily activities and walking meditation, one of the reasons we do it is because it develops quite a firm state of mind where you're aware of 
even in this movement, you're still mindful and you have concentration. And that's very useful because it, the mind becomes very firm and then you go off and do other things after you're walking. You know, maybe not at a time when you have time to sit meditation, maybe you have to go off and do some work or have a bath or eat a meal or something. But this sense of mindfulness goes with you because you've been developing it in the walking posture. But then if you've been doing a very slow kind of walk, maybe you have to go off and do some activity where you can't be slow and then you might find it difficult to be mindful when you can't be slow. So it's not essential to always do it when in a slow walk. You can do it as an ordinary pace walk and then when you go off and do other activities, you just walk into the car, walk into the yard, going to work, going up and down steps, going shopping, all these times in your day when you're walking at a normal pace, you can practice mindfulness because you've been doing it before. And you'll see, I mean, one day we walk a lot, many minutes, even hours, if you add all the, all the times up when we're walking. And much of that time is time that you're not necessarily talking to anyone or having to concentrate on anything at all other than walking what we usually do is let our mind go all over the place as we walk. <laughs> the mind is not with the walking, the mind is with our planning and going here and going there and getting things, going shopping. If you go shopping, your mind is in the shops before you've even got there. Maybe you're coming back to your car from the shops, you're just walking but your mind isn't with the walking, your mind is already back home cooking the evening meal or talking to somebody or doing something. The walking meditation, when you do it often, it helps you to start practicing walking meditation in your daily life at these different times. And so when you, when you see it like this, you have, see the advantage of it like this, you see, well, when you practice it, ideally you want to just walk back and forth. But if there are times when you can't do that and you're just walking from A to B during the course of your day, well, you can still do this walking meditation. Just be mindful of your posture, mindful of the buddho or the breathing or just your physical posture as you're stepping along the sidewalk or a path somewhere. And you can use your daily life then to start developing this state of mindfulness, just walking in different situations. And this is how monks used to walk in the old days. They used to walk from jungle area to jungle area, especially in Asia where there used to be a lot of jungle. They'd actually do a lot of wandering. They're just walking along a pathway but they're practicing mindfulness in this way, moving from A to B. And you can see anybody in the world, you know, they have times of their day when they're walking and you can make that as part of your meditation and that way you have a way to increase mindfulness through your day. So even when you can't walk back and forth, if you have to walk around a park, say you have kids or family members and you take them for a walk, maybe your kids are playing but you're just quietly walking meditation next to them. You're still with them and you're walking the same place but you're doing your meditation. You keep one eye on the kids and they're doing their thing, playing, running around, whatever, but you can do your walking meditation at the same time. Or you're walking for exercise. You know, people like to go and walk around a sports oval or in the park or around the, the, the block. You can do walking meditation as you walk for exercise. So you know, you, once you get the hang of it, then you can see oh, there's a lot of opportunity to develop mindfulness in the walking posture.
question is how do we help young children learn respect for elders without them losing their own assertiveness? Well, I think it's about you know, if you practice mindfulness and developing your ability to reflect on situations and this is what you can teach kids you know, how to be mindful in a different situation the quality of mindfulness and then the reflectiveness the, the ability to use your intelligence to contemplate something you can start to um, train them in knowing your know, time and place so you, there's a time in life where you might have to be assertive and then there's a time where you have to show respect, isn't it? I mean, we, we know this partly anyway, but sometimes the boundaries get blurred. So you know, say you're at school and the teacher is telling you something, you know, well, that's the time to be respectful and listen and give them the respect because they're your teacher teaching you something. Uh, and if you're just being disrespectful, playing around, talking, ignoring them, well, they'll get upset because you're being disrespectful, the rest of the class is affected and you personally might end up even punished. So, you know, you, you can teach them that, can't you? Teach them about time and place. When is the time to play? When is the time to be respectful, listening to a teacher, say, or at home? You know, when is the time to be assertive? When is the time to be respectful? You know, you teach them the boundaries. It depends on the age of the child, I guess. If it's a very small child, you know, the boundaries are quite tight because they don't know anything yet. And you say, basically, it's you know, do what your mum and dad say all the time when they're very small. You just say, do what I say. <laughs> because they don't yet understand a lot. And you just have to say, listen to your parents, do what your parents tells you because I'm protecting you, I'm helping you learn, I'm helping you do everything you need to do. And you, you explain to them to some extent you say, you have to listen to me, you have to respect me, because you don't know yet. And maybe you point out the consequences sometimes of being disrespectful when you're very small. You say, well, what happens to very small kids when they're disrespectful? And then they don't listen to their parents. Well, they make mistakes, and those mistakes can be very dangerous sometimes. You can run out in front of a car or put your hand in a naked flame or, or do all kinds of silly things and cause yourself grief and other people grief so you might explain to them sometimes and say oh look you really got to listen to your parents because you don't know yet what's right and you just keep drumming it in which you all do anyway I think as parents I'm not a parent so I don't know this but <laughs> from what I've seen this is what you have to do <laughs> but as they get older then assertiveness in their own world maybe they have to learn that sometimes don't they because they're with other kids of the same age or older or younger you have to again teach them about time and place like if they're a 10 year old or a 12 year old and they've got a 5 year old with them you tell them well you can't be too assertive because that becomes bullying you've got to have compassion for your younger brother your younger sister you can't treat them the same as you they're not physically as strong they're not mentally as wise so you have to teach them that explain to them and you know, if they don't get it, you say, "Well, what if I was, <laughs> what if I was like bullying you? I'm much older and bigger. You don't like it. Well, you don't do that to the young one. 
so there's a time and place to be assertive. But if it's with someone their own age, same size, same age, or you say, oh, well, sometimes you have to be assertive if somebody is being, you know, acting inappropriately towards you. They're bullying you or uh, acting in a selfish way. Sometimes it's correct to stick up for yourself, put your point of view, tell them what's right. If you're sure that what they're doing is wrong, maybe it is appropriate but you're teaching them to use the wisdom and their ability to judge situations, to know the right time, the right place. And part of this you get through karma, understanding karma. Like if you understand karma, you can pass this on to your kids. So like you tell your kids, you know, if you're doing things which cause you pain and suffering or other people pain and suffering, why do it? You know, it's not worth it, is it? It's not in your interest to do that. That's what we call bad karma. Don't make bad karma because you suffer and others suffer. Whereas if you're doing things and it's bringing you benefit and bringing others benefit, well, that's probably the right thing to do. And you're teaching them this ability to reflect, think about the consequences of their actions. And you can start when they're little kids, but gradually as they get older they'll appreciate this point more. And you're teaching them just basic things like, you know, respect for other people's property, respect for other people's space, uh, respect for older people. If they're very old, you have to teach them, oh, these very old people, once they were our parents, or our, they, they helped us in these different ways, now we have to uh, look after them because they're getting older, they're not so strong, they need some support. You can teach them these things and teach them about karma. You say, if you're very selfish and you never think of anybody else, only want the world to go according to the way you want, you'll end up with no friends. <laughs> and you'll end up with no one respecting you because you're selfish. And you teach them these in this way about karma. If you do this, then they gradually might get the point. Little by little, they become more aware of their actions and the consequences of their actions. Now you can say, you know, if sometimes if somebody's been um, difficult with us, they're acting inappropriately to us. It doesn't mean to say every time you have to be assertive, though, does it? It's just like adults. You know, adults, people sometimes, they do um, try and get the better of us. But if you, every time you try and assert yourself, one, you might not be able to do that, or two, you might not succeed. And three, you, you might, sometimes you might just be creating a lot of unnecessary suffering for yourself or prolonging a situation. You know, some, somebody um, comes along, you know, like the driving one, they come along and they um, cut in front of you or they drive in some way that is obviously uh, without rules or without, they're not polite. You know, if you make an issue out of that and want to assert yourself, or well, you might end up in a fight or something. <laughs> Sometimes it's easier just to say, I'll let them go, they don't know. I'll just forgive them and forget them and let them go. And they do go usually if they're driving. You just finish with it, end it there. And then your heart is free from that. You don't have to carry a lot of anger in your heart. And sometimes, say, at work it might be like that. Not every time that somebody does something inappropriate, you have to challenge them, you have to bring it up, you have to talk about it. A lot of the time you can just let it go and... That's their problem. If they're acting inappropriately, you know it's going to come round to them and cause them suffering sooner or later. That's karma. That's how it works. Whereas if you're going to go and t 
teach them or assert yourself over them. If you're not skilled enough and you don't know the right way to do it at the right time, or maybe you end up making more trouble than it's worth. You have to think it through. But occasionally there may be the time when you do have to assert yourself. It just depends on the situation. But these, these are skills you learn and meditation and understanding the Buddhist teachings can help you with this. You become a little wiser and you realize a lot of the time you can just let go and let other people take care of themselves and you just make sure you take care of yourself and do your, what's appropriate for you. And then when you've learned that, well, you can pass that wisdom on to your kids, I think. Last question. ท่านรวมพ่อว่าถ้าเราเป็นคารวะถ้าเราเป็นคารวะไม่มีบารมีหรืออะไรเป็นแต่พุทธชนธรรมดาเมื่อเราสวดมนต์และสวดปอดแผ
ครอบครัวญาติพี่น้องก็ดีแต่ละคนมีกรรมเป็นของตนเราก็วางดีโดยทุกคนแต่ว่าเกิดเขาทุกข์ขึ้นมาเราจะทุกข์ด้วยไหมถ้าเรายังอุปทานยึดอยู่บนที่รักของเราเราก็ต้องทุกข์ไปด้วยยิ่งยึดกี่คนกี่คนเราก็ยิ่งทุกข์เท่าไหร่เท่านั้นเพราะฉะนั้นท่านให้เราฝึกหัดพิจารณาอุเบกขาคือเราตั้งสติพิจารณากฎแห่งกรรมว่าเออเรารักลูกเราก็ให้ทุกยิงทุกอย่างกับลูกเราก็สอนลูกให้เคารพในพุทธศาสนาแต่สุดท้ายความสุขความทุกข์ของลูกเขาเป็นผู้สร้างเขาเป็นผู้ที่สร้างกรรมสร้างเหตุเองให้เราพิจารณาตรงนี้ด้วยเราจะได้ฉลาดขึ้นเราจะได้เข้าใจเพราะว่าถ้าเรามีอุเพขาเกิดขึ้นมีสติปัญญาทานเรื่องลูกเรื่องญาติที่เรารักเราจะได้ช่วยเขามากที่สุดเพราะเราช่วยด้วยใจที่มีสติมีปัญญาไม่มีอคติถ้าเรามีเดรักอย่างเดียวเดี๋ยวอาจจะความรักอาจจะพาเราหลงอาจจะแนะนำผิดก็ได้หรือเราจะทุกข์มากจนช่วยเข้าไม่ได้แต่ถ้าเรามีอุเพขาอยู่ในใจเข้าใจตรงนี้อาจจะเป็นประโยชน์ยิ่งยิ่งยิ่งกว่าแค่รักอย่างเดียวแล้วก็มีทั้งสติทั้งปัญญาด้วยมันจะช่วยลูกเด่นที่ uh, there was a question just about um, says if we're a lay person and we don't have much barami or accumulated good karma we're still an unenlightened unenlightened individual when we chant the chant uh, spreading metta to our Family and friends, will they receive much from us? Will it have much real effect? So I was just pointing out that actually you know, have to look at it in a balanced way. Like if we're born as a human being, we're relatively healthy. We've come in contact with the Buddhist teachings. We've got a chance to practice like this in a place where there's no war and no. Natural disaster. We've already got a lot of good karma, good good karma helping us already, much more than many many people in this world. We're already very very lucky. So we're not without barami or without goodness. We've already achieved much, but we have to develop more, obviously. And the, all that we do in our practice, the the learning to live in a peaceful way. Using the precepts as a guideline, trying to develop good karma and avoid bad karma. Uh, trying to develop ourselves with mindfulness and wisdom, live in a more skillful way. All of this is developing very good, wholesome energy for ourselves, and it's also been a good example to our family, our friends. You know, the more we can develop ourselves in this way, the more use we are to ourselves and others. And they, they'll get this good example. And if we think of others, say in our meditation or when we're chanting, your mind has more energy, doesn't it? If your mind is more peaceful, you're developing yourself, trying to live in a moral way, in a way you don't harm others. You know that develops its own energy. And when you think of others, there's some goodness there that that can affect them, either just on the level of thought, or when you speak to other people that you know, or the actions you do. Will have a very profound effect, particularly over time. Maybe just one day, maybe not so much, but over time has a very good effect on your family and friends. Um, 
And we shouldn't underestimate this. Often in life we tend to look at ourselves as sort of, we we know all our faults, we know our weaknesses, and so we tend to have a a bad view of ourselves. Uh, It's not wrong to be aware of your weaknesses, but at the same time not to be too fixed in that view because it becomes a negative view and we think, oh, I'm hopeless, I'm no good. Which tends to, you know, it scuttles our plans to, to do good and our efforts. Often we have to have a balanced view and say, well, there's room for improvement. I must try harder. I must look more at where I can practice and improve myself. If we look down on ourselves too much, uh, that's not good. But then we don't want to overdo it either. We don't want to put ourselves so high and think we're so special. And that wouldn't be very helpful either. So try and have a balanced view and just see where you can keep improving in your practice. And the more mindfulness we have, the more we learn the Dhamma, understand the Dhamma, the more that will affect everyone around us, for sure. So we've reached uh, the end of the question and answer period. So I'll probably leave it there for now. And we have... um, Uh, Just another half an hour break, 25 minute break and then back here for the last meditation and chanting.